It's at times of great crisis that we can learn things about ourselves we may only have suspected before. After the attacks on America that became universally known as 9-11, Americans were surprised by the depth and intensity of the patriotic feeling that erupted all over the land, as indeed were we who watched from abroad. It was a moment of coming together, but also of returning to core values. One thing we noticed, we watchers, was the central role the American flag played in that rallying of the American national spirit. It became the symbol, not just of allegiance, but of defiance, that Americans will not be cowed. Some of us may also have noticed that it was to the flag rather than to the cross that Americans turned at that dire moment, a secular symbol, the one invested with deep moral and spiritual contact. The flag... Yet religion, and Christianity in particular, is never far removed from how ordinary Americans understand themselves. Of course, America is a secular nation whose constitution enshrines what Thomas Jefferson called a wall of separation between church and state. The nation did not have a national religion to turn to. So it was to the iconography, one might almost say the ideology, of America, that those hurt people turned for strength and consolation. And that was very much a mark of America's profound religiosity, of the way certain beliefs and myths stand at the heart of a people's self-understanding. There is no official religion which says America is a nation called by God to a special destiny in the affairs of the world. I dare say, though, most members of official religions in America, including their leaders, do in fact believe it. Listen to what Mayor Rudolph Giuliani said when he spoke at St. Paul's in New York not long after the World Trade Center attacks. All that matters, he told the congregation, is that you embrace America and understand its ideals and what it's all about. Abraham Lincoln used to say that the test of your Americanism was not your family tree, the test of your Americanism was how much you believed in America. Because we're like a religion, really. A secular religion. We believe in ideas and ideals. We're not one race, we're many. We're not one ethnic group, we're everyone. We're not one language, we're all these people. Extraordinary statement. There were certain no, certainly no letters to the press challenging what in an English context would have, seen, would have been seen as a highly controversial and provocative statement. Or we could quote the first inaugural address of President Bush, who said of America's history, we are not this story's author who fills time and eternity with his purpose. Yet his purpose is achieved in our duty, and our duty is fulfilled in service to one another. This story goes on, and an angel, an angel still rides in the whirlwind and directs this storm. God bless you all. God bless America. Again, this is not a style of political discourse we are familiar with in Britain. When a journalist asked Tony Blair about his religious belief, his press officer, Alistair Campbell, jumped in to say, we don't do God. <laughs> this doctrine of Americanism that Mayor Giuliani spoke of is unblushingly filled with high moral purpose. I remember as a boy of nine, I'm, I'm older than most of you here, I was sitting in my home in Reading, where I was born and brought up, listening to the radio 
It was the year 1941, a very bad time for England in the Second World War. There came over the radio a piece of poetry said by Winston Churchill. It was the poem, Say Not the Struggle, Nought Availeth, by Arthur Clough. But the last verse always resonated with me. And not by eastern windows only, when daylight comes, comes in the light. In front the sun climbs slowly, how slowly, but westward, look, the land is bright. Churchill hardly needed to explain to his deeply anxious audience that while darkness had fallen across Europe under the Nazi shadow, it was from the West, across the Atlantic, that the rays of hope still shone out. Ronald Reagan also used the metaphor of dawn breaking when he described how he loved to watch the first light of the day from a particular window in the White House. He said, the past few days when I've been at that window upstairs, I thought a bit of the shining city upon a hill. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life. It was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. A city with three ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls... The walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get there. That's how I saw it and see it still. That is the American story, and every American child can tell you. America is a place of freedom and refuge from persecution. America, above all, as a democracy and a republic, a land without aristocratic privilege where opportunities are available to all. We, from England, Britain, admire those values, and even claim to see some of our own reflected in them, perhaps noting with a touch of chagrin that this is a country that takes Magna Carta a little more seriously than we do. When America's reputation for the defense of freedom and human rights slips in the eyes of the rest of the world, we are concerned that a great beacon of hope in the world, which meant so much to my generation in wartime, has been dimmed. We sense that as dangerous to civilization itself. American religiosity embraces both religious faith and patriotism, which is a striking paradox in a land where church and state are supposed to be separate. We Europeans do sometimes worry that our American friends have blurred distinction, distinctions that need to be kept sharp. The idea that America is a nation whose special destiny is in the hands of providence, is certainly a comfort at a time of affliction, but it's probably not the best guide to foreign policy. But we, who are still learning how to construct a plural, multi-faith society, and who are aware of the limitations of multiculturalism, yet not happy with an absolute and imposed secularism, have still a lot to learn from the people of the United States. Their seeking of a better life is linked with their religious faith. In the schools of America, I understand, the first thing children learn is to salute the flag and declare their Americanness. They can say, God bless America, and then happily add, I'm a, a Baptist or a Jew, Catholic, Muslim. To them it seems to be a good Catholic, good Jew, good Muslim is to be a good American. To be a good American is to be good Catholic, good Jew, good Muslim, good Baptist. Through their very first beginnings and first colonial settlements, Americans felt themselves to be part of the chosen race. 
with a mission to be part of the glorious work of God. What is it Longfellow said? Sail on, O union strong and great, humanity with all its fears, with all its hopes for future years, is hanging breathless on thy fate. So today the religiosity of the United States is part and parcel of its present, and above all of its future. America always looks with hopeful eyes to the future. Problems can be solved, people can be saved, the work of God will continue amongst his people. Years ago, when I lived in Rome, I spoke with an Italo-American, he was an author called Luigi Barzini was his name, and he'd written an excellent book about the Italians. So I asked him what he was doing, he said, well, I'm now writing a book about the Americans. So I said, well, what are you calling it? He said, I'm calling it The Curse of Adam. So I said, why are you calling it The Curse of Adam? Well, he said, I've lived in America many, many years, and what's at the heart is that every problem can be overcome. And uh, there are some problems that there haven't been able yet to, to solve. The curse of Adam brought suffering and death. He said, we're working on that too. <laughs> and the Americans believe that also, the curse of Adam, can be overcome. I thought it was an interesting insight. But the contrast with Europe is striking. In the first place, patriotism as a political guiding star is distrusted because of the abuses of extreme nationalism from which Europe suffered over much of the last century. The European Union is a conscious attempt to transcend national loyalties and to offer a unifying idea of Europeanness on the basis of common values. But it's having a painful birth including an attempt to airbrush out of historical memory Europe's shared Christian heritage. Whether motivated by overt hostility to religion or merely by a desire to find a lowest common denominator, such denial of the obvious is unhealthy and dishonest and will do Europe no good. The European mood is marked by pessimism. This is in some ways surprising, as the institutions that were created post-war to keep the peace of Europe the uh, European Union itself, NATO, European Convention on Human Rights under the Council of Europe, have been remarkably successful in what historically has been a very troubled and troublesome continent. But triumphs of the human spirit, though they may be, none of these play any part in European religious religiosity. This may be part of the problem. With the American example in mind, one might even think that to incorporate Christianity into European vision-building rather than to turn one's back on it would be a positive thing to do and a great help in the construction of a common European civilization. The Enlightenment and the Age of Reason were important intellectual landmarks in Europe's history, as they were in America, but the two continents handled them very differently. In America, the vision that came from faith and the rationality that came from the Enlightenment worked together from the start, inspiring, for instance, the founding fathers who devised the American Constitution. In Europe, they have been seen as at odds with one another, as if they were mutually exclusive. But pure rationality surely does not have the same capacity to inspire bold visions and great deeds. It's worth remembering that the founders of post-war Europe were also people of faith, though no doubt entirely rational. If we now exclude from European consciousness the energy that drove them, 
It is hardly surprising if the resulting grey edifice lacks the ability to fire the imagination of its citizens. So the attempt to pretend that Europe has no Christian history, laughable in itself, is also likely to prove the undoing of the whole European project. In Europe, there are definite fatigue. There's a definite fatigue setting in with mindless consumerism, and there's a hunger for meaning at a deeper level. Of course, such meaning cannot be imposed from on high, and the institutional churches in particular have to learn to follow a humbler path than they've been used to. The Gospels offer an alternative to the city on the hill model of the kingdom of God, which forms a key part of American self-understanding, and which has in the past seemed to sanction a powerful and triumphalistic role for the church's participation in society. That alternative is uh, far more modest and uh, a no less vital metaphor of the leaven and the mass. The Lord, the Jesus gave that contrast that, that the kingdom of God is like the city on the hill, but also like the leaven in the mass, uh, the leaven in the dough, the, the almost invisible agent that work enlivening and animating the human mass from within. In this model, the church does not seek to dictate but to serve. It is inspired by our Lord's example to seek out the poor, the homeless, the imprisoned, the stranger, the lost and lonely, and to attend to their needs and to stand alongside them. It's not so much an offer of faith as of hope and love, but faith will follow. This is what the church seeks today to be allowed to do in a plural society, not by way of privilege and power, but by dedicated service to the common good. A secularism that does not make space for that is not acceptable. It's a crucial issue in our country today. But such a role for the church offers no threat to anyone, and there are no good grounds for excluding it. In any event, such a, 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 a spiritually barren society would not thrive. It would lack the optimism needed to go forward, the imagination to escape from purely material concerns, the vision to conceive a new future. This is a great challenge to the church, to renew itself in such a way that it is equipped to do good by stealth. The governing institutions of the church need to recast their functions so that they can better serve those who are serving others, the laity above all. And no one here, no one is reminded so much of that, of the ancient title of the, of the Supreme Pontiff, of the Pope, when he calls, he's called the servant of the servants of God. Europe and America appear to be at different stages in their historical cycles with regard to matters of faith, their, religious, their religiosity. And there's a warning to them both. In America's case, the warning comes from the Old Testament history of another people that deemed itself chosen a lesson well known to the Protestant founders of the colonies of New England. It is a warning that religiosity can be cyclic in its seasons. It is a warning that faithfulness will be followed by laxity, even idolatry and unfaithfulness. The things of God become mere instruments of power used for selfish or wicked purposes. Great edifices usually contain the seeds of their own destruction. Power corrupts as the Catholic historian Lord Acton reminded us, the more absolute the power, the more absolute the corruption. America, the military and economic superpower, needs to heed that. 
The Catholic Church, which sometimes makes the mistake of thinking itself as a spiritual superpower, needs to heed it too. In this Old Testament cycle of gain and loss, God eventually intervenes to chastise his people who have lost their way, bringing confusion and suffering until a prophet appears to remind them of their sins and show them the way back. Where Europe is in that cycle and where America is, I'll leave to your imagination. But I think wherever they are, each can learn from the other. The moral from America is that religion and democracy must make room for each other. To banish religion from the public square in the name of freedom and democracy is ultimately to threaten freedom and democracy, and then there will be no public square left to defend. By all means, let us separate church and state, if that is what it takes to maintain diversity and the exclusion of none. But if it leads to the exclusion of all, we are in peril. And as the Proverbs warn us, where there is no vision, the people perish. So let me end on a more encouraging note. Closer, I believe, to the reality, with another verse from that poem of Arthur Clough. For while the tired waves, vainly breaking, seem here no painful inch to gain, far back, through creeks and inlets breaking, comes silent flooding in the main. Thank you. Mm-hmm.